Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle. Yet the look should be timeless, and you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability They'll have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits, experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to get our recipes, to stream our television show, or to get our latest cookbooks. Here's this week's show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today, Grant Barrett and Martha Barnett of Away With Words join us to explore the language of food. They dig into the curious stories behind words such as pumpernickel and luncheon. They also explain phrases that seemingly don't make a lot of sense, such as in a pickle. If you're in trouble and you're in a pickle, the image there isn't being inside a cucumber. It's a reference to the brine itself that was used to pickle cucumbers. 
Also coming up, we chat with Adam Gopnik about climate change and its effect on wine, and we take a deep dive into curry. But first, it's my interview with Chef Lior Lev Sarkars. To many of the world's top chefs, Lior is known as the spice therapist. He owns La Boite, a spice shop in New York. Lior, welcome back to Milk Street. Uh, thanks for having me back. Um, you've come up to Milk Street. We've worked together. We've known each other for a while. I, I really like your definition of, of what spices are. So could you just tell us how you define spices? Sure. To me, anything in a dry format that I could use to season my food um, is a spice to me. And, and that combines herbs and, and grains and rhizomes and barks, but also opens the possibilities to uh, dried fruits and dried vegetables and even dried cheese and seaweed and seafood, etc. You also talk in your book about uh, smoke as sort of an, a concept in spice. You want to talk about that? I think that's kind of interesting. Sure. Smoke uh, is definitely a very important category. I'm happy you brought it up. There are spices that are either smoked, such as uh, pimenton, the smoked paprika or chipotles, or or smoked salt even. And I think the smoke is really interesting because it tricks our brain in a very positive way to think about an item that was grilled or or cooked over fire or in a wood fire. And it really sets the, the tone... Okay, let, let's do some basics here. Uh, the question I get all the time is, how long should I keep my spices? I have an answer, but your answer is probably better. So what's yours? The answer is, uh, the smart answer is that if you're asking that question, they should probably not be in your kitchen <laughs> anymore. Um, the <laughs> more, <laughs> the, if you look at them and you don't remember how long you had them, then that's already a bad sign. Um, the trick that I tell people all the time is whatever you purchase, you bring it into your kitchen, take two seconds with a pen or, or some sort of a, a Sharpie and, and write on that container, please use me before and just add one, one year to that particular day. Spices, as you know better than I do, can be low quality, medium quality or high quality, depending on where you get them and source them. Are there things consumers can look for to get some idea uh, other than just tasting or smelling them in terms of quality? I think there's a few quick tricks when while you're at the store, um, evaluating their shape and color. As an example, if you are purchasing whole black peppercorn and uh, they're not really black, that could be a sign that they were not fully ripened or, or fully dried. If they are half whole and half in powder, they might be really old and fall into dust. What, let's talk about making your own, like drying your own. So what, what are some common things people have around the kitchen that they could turn into something they could use later? Uh, quite a few of us buy a lot of um, herbs, and, and I love fresh herbs. And, you know, there comes a time when they start turning slightly brown, and you don't really know if you're going to use them or not. Um, very simply, on, on a cookie rack with a, a tray underneath, you can lay them flat or on a parchment paper, and within a few days, especially in winter season, they dry very quickly. So the mint, the tarragon, the basil, the parsley, all of, of these great herbs could be turned into fantastic dried herbs. Another quick trick is citrus. Just dry that peel and you, you get a fantastic citrus peel that you can crumble or ground for tea, for roasting, for cooking meats, uh, you know, time-saving and also money-saving. Uh, let's pick half a dozen spices that everyone should have, uh, things that people don't really cook with enough or could really change the way they cook. Uh, cumin seeds, for sure. 
It's something that I always carry. Coriander is definitely one of them fennel seeds, which, you know, I know could be a bit polarizing at times. Uh, a type of chili flake, whether it's an Urfa or an Aleppo. Maybe you should just define what Urfa pepper is. Oh, sure. Uh, Urfa uh, being a, a fairly large, like a poblano-shaped size uh, pepper that grows in the south of Turkey and for some beautiful, mysterious way has really a nose, like if you just smell the jar of cocoa, meets uh, a, a really rich Barolo wine with a hint of an espresso. It's one ingredient that delivers such. I often have to hide my jar of Urfa, otherwise it will go into everything that I cook. Uh, so a chili, a cumin, a ginger, which I love using uh, in many ways because of the citrus note and the heat note that it delivers. Cinnamon, uh, funny enough, more for savory, less than in sweets. I really love what cinnamon does to savory dishes. So you use cinnamon, let's say, with a, a beef dish of some kind, for example? Uh, a beef or even uh, uh, roasting vegetables. Poultry, for sure, loves. Uh, and even tomato sauces uh, really benefit from a touch of, of cinnamon. So you travel a lot, as you said. Are there a couple of places you've been where you've been really struck or amazed or shocked by the way someone was using spices, something you'd not seen before? Yeah, so, I mean, my, my most recent trip to India, one of the chefs that I met and something that kind of stuck with me uh, was taking dried chilies and then uh, actually blanching them a few times to actually get rid of the heat, which is kind of ironic because there were this hot variety, but he's claimed that these chilies are fantastic actually when they lose the heat. So... Where is this all headed? You've been doing this a long time. Do you think that spices, where the United States has really been a place, at least for a long time, that was spice-less, right? Cinnamon, nutmeg, salt, pepper, a few things. Do you think that's really about to change now? I think it's already changing. The challenge was for many years is that if you use spices, you had to cook exotic or foreign dishes. And we are now finally at the point or getting there where you can say, I can make a traditional clam chowder, giving it a spin with uh, a spice from elsewhere. I think the idea of mastering your cuisine and feeling comfortable with it, that's the most important. And then you could start accessorizing and bringing those spices that take the dish from just okay to unbelievably delicious and, and exciting. Lior, thanks for visiting us at Milk Street. Thank you so much for having me. That was Lior Lev Sarkars. His latest book is Mastering Spice, Recipes and Techniques to Transform Your Everyday Cooking. It's time for my co-host Sarah Malt and I to answer your culinary questions. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on Public Television, also author of the book Home Cooking 101. You know, before we open up the phone lines, I have a question for you, Chris. It's about those meat substitute burgers. How well, do you feel about them? Sarah, do you really need to ask me this question? You know the answer. I sort of do. Any food that has the word substitute in it, I'm not going to eat. Well, they don't use that word. They call it impossible burger meat or beyond replacement. burger. No, look. In terms of taste, right, and texture, meat is meat. 
you know, Saitan back in the 70s, people were trying to do... Have you tried any? Yes, I've tried actually two of them. I was in a blind tasting a few years ago, two or three years ago. Really? Yeah. They've been around that long? Yeah. And what'd you think? I didn't like them. Hmm. I mean, I understand the concept for the planet and, you know, the environment. All of that's laudable and notable, but there's nothing better than ground beef for hamburger. So I will stick with that. Now, for other reasons, I understand it, but... Have you had them? Yes. And? I hated it. Okay. okay. So so there we are. I, you know, I they do look and taste a little bit like meat, but no. they had way too many ingredients, and that always makes me nervous. Well, substitute foods always end up getting there by putting a lot of other things in it. I know. And I'd rather and just so, eat it straight up, the so real just McCoy. If, yeah, either don't eat meat, you know, just eat vegetables or whatever. Which is fine. Or eat meat. But yeah. this substitute thing, I just don't understand. No. Well, now that we got that sorted out, let's uh, take the first call. Open up the lines. Let's go. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, Chris. It's Marcy calling in Montreal. And how can we help you? I'm a professional baker, and I, I write cookbooks, but I've noticed over the years, when you bake with buttermilk and some other books I've seen, they always say add the baking soda to the buttermilk first before you add it to the recipe. And I always sort of see that as watching the leavening disappear before my eyes right. before it even gets added to the recipe. I'm wondering about your take on that or why recipes would mention that technique. This is going to be a short call. Uh, I agree. I make buttermilk biscuits all the time. And you always add the baking powder or baking soda directly to the flour with any sugar or salt. Mm-hmm. And then the buttermilk is added after you cut the fat into the flour. So there's absolutely no need to add baking soda to buttermilk. Some older recipes sometimes had the leavener put into warm or hot water. I've wondered about that. My conclusion is that they did that to see if the leavener was active. That's exactly what um, I was thinking. To make sure that it's, it's actually still good. Oh, that's interesting. The other thing is the bicarbonate of soda, what they used back in the 1840s, that stuff, was pretty harsh and strong. And so if you lost some of the leavening power when you introduced it to hot water, that was probably okay. But there's never a need to add leavener to a hot liquid. I'm sure that that was it. It was sort of like when you proof yeast, you know, the powdered yeast, and you have to proof it, and part of it is to make sure that it's still alive. Yeah, because I always sort of thought back in the day that the baking soda maybe was a little grainy or pebbly, and they maybe tried to dissolve it first before adding it. That could be, too. They had a lot of different chemicals they used as leavener, and some of it may have not been powdered fine. And it was strong. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was very strong stuff. So, But today, always put the leavener in with the, the flour or the, the dry ingredients. Okay. Marcy, quick question. Mm-hmm. Tell us the name of your last cookbook. Actually, it's just in time for the fall. It's called The Newest Jewish Cookbook. And for you. you can get it through betterbaking.com, which is my site. But it's everything from what your grandmother used to make to a little bit more global things for the new season. Good Wonderful. for you. Congratulations. Yes, Marcy. Well, thanks for calling. Thanks for calling. Good question. Thank you both. Okay. Welcome to Mill Street. Who's calling? This is Liza. How are you? Where are you calling from? I am calling from Connecticut. I'm redoing the kitchen, so I'm going to get rid of the stove. I wanted to know, what is the optimum distance from the flame to the bottom of the pan? I think you get a prize for the question that nobody has ever asked me in my entire career. I think it's the BTU, British Thermal Unit Output, of the burners that would be more important because if you had a ton of heat output, I don't think the height of the grate is going to matter as much. Right, Sarah? Yeah, I agree. Ask about the British Thermal Units, the maximum. Uh Secondly, ask for the minimum. 
Nobody ever asked that question. That's a good one. Because if it gets down to 1,200 or something like that, then you get a nice slow simmer. I find some of these high-powered stovetops don't simmer well because you can't get it low enough without the flame going out. What about the size of the burner? Like yes. If I'm using a big Dutch oven and I want yeah. a low heat, well, I know I should put it inside the oven, but let's say I can't put it inside right. the oven and I keep it on top of the stove, do I use the big burner really low or do I use the little burner really low? It's a good question. Uh, it depends on the design of the heat. Some models have a little circular heater and then surrounded by a bigger ring. So when right. you get down to simmer, they just use that in the small ring. The only thing I don't love about that is I don't think it gives good coverage for the whole pan. If you have enamel cast iron, let's say, for a Dutch oven, once that gets up to temperature, it'll be fairly even. The only time I find that to be an issue is sometimes some of these pans, they have rings where they're very hot where the ring is, but not hot for the rest of the pans. You want to make sure it gives you nice even coverage around, let's say, a 12-inch skillet. If you're going to saute or stir-fry in a skillet, you definitely want even heating throughout the whole bottom. I agree. The BTU, what's the number I should be looking for? Uh, The minimum would be 15,000, but I think 20,000 would be really ideal. And then for minimum, I think if you could get down below 1,000 or 1,200 on the other side, and also try the simmer and just see if it can hold that flame at that low temperature. Without going out. Because they flame out. And look at the design of the burner. What, and usually an oven in that kind of stove is what? Gas? Or electric. electric. I like an electric oven and a gas stovetop. Yeah. So I hope that's helpful. Anyway, Liza, how much fun redoing your kitchen. That's terrific. I know, right? Yeah. I'm very lucky. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you Take so care. much. Take care. Thanks for calling. Okay. Helpful. Thank yeah. you. Bye. Bye. This is Milk Street Radio. If you have a cooking question, give us a ring. That's 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Connor from Columbus, Ohio. Hi, Connor from Columbus, Ohio. How can we help you today? I'm having trouble cooking Polish cabbage rolls in large quantities. Hmm. What is the problem exactly? They're not getting cooked through, I would guess. Uh, yeah, we uh, essentially tripled our recipe, usually cooking about 16 at a time to about 50. And the pot wouldn't even raise to a boil in like four hours. And you've got rice in the stuffing? Yeah, beef and pork and rice. Okay. So you're baking them in the oven, correct? No, we're not actually not. We're actually cooking them in a stock pot, boiling them on the stove. How many layers are there in the pot? Most of the time, there's a layer of cabbage leaves on the bottom of the pot, and then you build a well of about maybe four layers for the 16 rolls. We built it almost to the top of the pot, and we did 50. And the liquid is where? You put some sauerkraut in the center of the well and then fill it with water about an inch above the cabbage rolls. I think you do far better to use large roasting pans that are heavy-duty, put them in one Mm -hmm. layer and cover them with the liquid, bring it up to a boil on top of the stove to a simmer, the liquid, or even bring the water to a boil before you add it to the cabbage rolls, although I'd probably add stock instead of water, but then cover them and finish them in the oven. 
Do you think you could braise them, like put some liquid in and cover it tightly, have them steamed essentially braised? I mean, I, I agree a roasting pan's better than a stock pot. I think you've just got too many layers to even bring right. the water up or for them to properly cook. And, you know, because you've got rice in there that needs to hydrate and needs all that liquid, I think you'd do better without stacking them so much. Okay. I think Sarah's right. I think roasting pans and a couple layers would be better. Yeah. yeah it's just too and, deep. And when you think about oven. it, you've got all those cold ingredients in a huge yeah. stock pot and probably added cold water. You know, of course it took forever because not only did it take a while for the water to come up to a boil, everything else in that pot is bringing the temperature down. And, you know, in the oven, you have a much more even temperature anyway than you would on top of the stove. So I think a shallow situation with like a roasting pan is the way to go. Okay. All right. I have nothing negative to <laughs> nothing say. Nothing to I, add. I think okay. you're, I think you're right. right. All right, Connor. Thanks for calling. Yes, thank you. Thank you very much. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, we'll examine the language of food with Grant Barrett and Martha Barnett, their co-hosts of Away With Words. That's coming up right after the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. Ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an allagash white. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with, like, spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine, like, something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. 
It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagashoid. <laughs> yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. In a pickle, here's mud in your eye. Well, we sometimes say these things, but what do they really mean? Grant Barrett and Martha Barnett are here to explain all of that and much more. They're co-hosts of Away With Words, a public radio program devoted to language. Grant and Martha, welcome to Milk Street. Hi, Chris. Hi, Chris. I'm a super fan. I listen to your show Saturday mornings early on in Vermont Public Radio uh, while I'm making pancakes. Um, maybe you could just explain Away With Words. What is the show and what's the concept? Well, Away With Words is about language and how we use it, and that's all different kinds of uh, language slang. It's about word origins. It's about regional dialects, the funny things that you all say in Vermont that we don't say here in <laughs> California or that I didn't hear growing up in Kentucky. It's about better writing and better reading of texts and um, just all things linguistic. In three words, it's car talk for language. That was very good. You must have been in marketing when you were in college <laughs> or something. <laughs> So we've prepared a few questions for you, obviously related to food. And the first is we've heard mangoes used to describe green bell peppers in parts of the country. Uh, and I have no idea what the origin of that is. Have you ever come across a recipe from the 1800s and seen it describing bell peppers as mangoes? You know, I have. I have lots of 19th century cookbooks from the 1840s on, but I've never seen that term. No, not in print, no. Well, it's still happening today. It started for us. We got a call from a woman named Annie years ago who had married into a family from Kentucky, and she was from Indiana, and they're kind of separated by the Ohio River. And she went to a family gathering, and her father-in-law offered to make her a plate of food at this gathering. She said, sure. And he's like, do you want some mango with that? And she said, yes, I would like some mango. And he gives her the plate, and there's no mango on it. And she's like, excuse me, is there any more of that mango left? And he goes, yeah, it's right there. And he points to a bell pepper. And hmm. she's like, what? And she's so confused. She's married into this family. They use language differently than she does. And so she called us. And when you look into it, you realize that it has to do with 400 years 
of history of the British in India bringing back mango pickled in a particular way. And then that pickling technique was later used for uh, melons and cucumbers and other things. Huh. And the pickling technique was verbed. I mean, you, you mango a thing. You mango a cucumber. You mango a muskmelon. And then it, and then then it nouned. And then the just like we call pickled cucumbers pickles, you might call mangoed peppers mangoes. And so, at least in this country, it huh. stuck mainly along the Ohio River Valley. So we hear it in Indiana and Ohio and Illinois, and a scattering and around in other states. Well, you just mentioned pickled cucumbers being called pickles. You know, I never, I don't know why I never really thought about that, but obviously that's where it comes from. Right. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. Well, think about the expression in a pickle. If you're in trouble and you're in a pickle, the image there isn't being inside a cucumber. It's uh, it's a reference to the brine itself that was used to pickle cucumbers. So that last bite, there is a name for that last piece of food, I guess? Yeah, there's several different terms for that. You know, imagine that you're in a restaurant and you order a key lime pie with two or three spoons for all the people around the table, and there's one bite left. What are you going to call that? Well, uh, in English, we call it sometimes the manners bit or the manners piece because everybody's trying to show off their good manners by not taking it. Um, I love that in Spanish, the term for it is the vergüenza. Vergüenza means shame. And so if you're taking the last huh. piece, then, you know, maybe you're a little embarrassed about it. You know, I have a related question, which growing up at the dinner table, if we had guests and we weren't sure if we had enough food, my mother always used to say FHB, you know, family hold back. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just thought that was a supremely stupid thing to do because it's not as if the guests didn't know what it meant. Um, <laughs> a lot of people use this. But I think you're missing one thing here, Chris. Sometimes you do want your guests to know that you are taking them into consideration, but you don't want to be obvious about it. So it's another kind of manners. You're demonstrating that you're taking their their concerns into into mind and trying to make sure that they get their, you know, enough. Yeah, I have to confess, I never heard of Family Hold Back until I was doing the show and somebody was talking about it. But it falls into that category of uh, code words that families use, like, there's a gazelle on the lawn. Now, <laughs> Which what somebody might say, <laughs> well, that's, that's a way of, of letting somebody know that uh, at the dinner table that uh, he has a little bit of, of uh, egg in his beard or something like that. <laughs> I never heard that before. <laughs> that's pretty good. So can I ask a more general question, which is, you know a lot about language. Are there some interesting consistencies in terms of how language is used socially in this country uh, to avoid a difficult situation or make things easier? Uh, You must have lots of examples of that. Yes. One of the ones I love to to bring up, because this isn't something that gets outside of the linguistic community very often, is that we will often resort to a different tense, a different verb tense, in order to make something a little more palatable. For example, mm-hmm. we frequently get complaints from people who say, why, why do they say, how are we doing when I go to the restaurant and they come to check on my meal? Or why do they say, will you be wanting anything else? Why don't they say, will you, do you want anything else? Or why don't they say, how are you doing? Hmm. And both of those are examples of distancing. And you'll find this throughout huh. the English-speaking world in these kind of commercial relationships that we have where one person is being paid to serve us or paid to do something for us. Uh, the, the definition of luncheon, uh, where does that come from? 
Well, one definition that I like for luncheon is Samuel Johnson, who uh, was the lexicographer who made the first very successful English language dictionary. He defined it as much food as you can hold in one hand <laughs> because lunch and luncheon probably come from older words referring to as much as you could hold in your hand. It's about the idea of clutching food or um, just something, hmm. a glob of something that you could quickly grab and put in your pie hole for a midday snack. <laughs> So you just said pie hole, which we all know means your mouth. But how did your mouth get designated as a pie hole? <laughs> I don't. I don't actually know that one. <laughs> it's one of my favorite terms, and I hesitate to look into it. There is something that happens when you work in the language business, where sometimes you don't look a thing up because you don't want to ruin it. And pie hole is my word. <laughs> I don't want to know anymore about it. I just want to use it and have fun with it. Is there a good example of a word or phrase that either of you have looked up and uh, really wish you hadn't? Yes. Oh, gracious. Yes. Shambles. <laughs> yeah, shambles and pumpernickel, I'd say. Pumpernickel. Okay, well, now you have to tell me why. <laughs> well, right. Uh, the nickel in pumpernickel bread has to do with an old term for uh, the devil. And pumpern, I believe, comes from a German word for passing gas. So it's sort of like... <laughs> The devil's wins. <laughs> yeah, the devil's win. That's a nice way to put it. At least the last time I looked it up. That's another thing. In the language business, uh, sometimes those etymologies change. But the last time I looked at pumpernickel, it had to do with the devil passing gas. And, and shambles also actually happens to be food-related because it refers to the blood and flyspecked benches that butchers used in London. That's originally huh. what it refers to. So if you talk about this room being a shambles, you're saying this looks like a charnel house. <laughs> this looks like <laughs> this looks like a disgusting butcher's room. I, I don't think I can order, uh, you know, a roast beef on pumpernickel. <laughs> <laughs> um, an expression my father actually used: "Here's mud in your eye." Uh, when having a, a toast or a drink, uh, where does that come from? So we use "here's mud in your eye" to give a toast to someone, and it's. Part of this tradition among friends to insult your friends. How you doing, you old SOB? It's that sort of thing. Or wishing someone mm-hmm. well on the stage by saying, break a leg, right? I see. There's a long slang tradition of this. But mud in your eye was a, was also a fighting tactic. You will find many old mentions of it, just the hmm. people scrapping in the yard, throwing mud in each other's eyes in order to blind them so that you could better tackle them and win the fight. But as early as 1911, we find here's mud in your eye being used to give a toast to someone. In your business... Uh, words. How do you actually get to the truth? Is that really hard to do? It is. It's very hard. Uh, so Martha and I were at one tiny part of a larger community of uh, professionals and amateurs who dig up word histories. And a lot of what we use is the digital resources that have become available in the last 30 years. We're talking about digital databases that have trillions of words now optimized, and you can search and find things in a heartbeat for very little money. And I can have a better impression and record of how people printed their language in the 1800s or 1700s now than the people who lived through the period. Huh. But the casual language just isn't there. You know, there's no great information about how students talk to, together on the playground and say 1812. Just, just the information just doesn't right. exist. Do, do you find that over time, language was more fungible and innovative and people making up terms, let's say in England and Victorian days, versus today, or do you think we're just as creative about language today as we've ever been? Oh, I think we're at least as creative now as as we were in the past. Um, you know, Thomas Carlyle, the English writer, said the coldest word was once a glowing new metaphor. And we're making metaphors mm-hmm. all the time. 
And I enjoy the um, the terms from the world of tech. I mean, I use oh, yeah. the term bandwidth all the time. You know, I don't have the right, bandwidth right. to deal with that. And I'm not talking about something electronic. I'm just talking about the fact that I don't have the capacity mm-hmm. to deal with that. Oh, and that reminds me of one that I do like, like that is the last 20 years, to talk about how many spoons you have. You can Google this, but there's a story about you start each day with a certain number of spoons, and you some spoons get dirty, and some spoons get lost, and some spoons are loaned out. By the end of the day, you've got no spoons. And those spoons stand for your ability to deal with the hassles of the world and the hassles that are put upon you by other people. So in certain communities where people have the social interaction issues that they're trying to deal with, they talk about, I just don't have the spoons for it anymore, meaning that I just can't deal with that right now. What's interesting to me is now we live in a digital age where you would think that communicating with words would not be a priority for people. Yet you're saying that we're even more creative about our language today than we were, let's say, 100 years ago. Well, what the Internet did is it exposed this level of informality that we were always saying and occasionally writing in print letters to each other. But now the whole world can see our casual one-off messages that are put out there Mm -hmm. with no editor and no real – just like kind of type it out and send it. We don't really think very much about it. And this level of informality has exposed what was always there and – And it's made it travel faster, travel further, and burn out quicker. So we're seeing these cycles of language Mm -hmm. kind of accelerate. I don't know that it's adding much more to the language, even though they're doing a lot more typing. But let me just put this way, Chris. If you're like me, you're probably typing, oh, 50 to 100,000 words a year more than you were 20 years ago. Probably. Maybe more. You're typing a novel a year that you weren't typing before. Uh, Grant and Martha, thank you so much for being on Milk Street. Thank you. Thanks for having us. That was Grant Barrett and Martha Barnett, hosts of Away With Words. You can find Away With Words every week on public radio stations across the country or wherever you get your podcasts. You know, growing up, my father would say, that's the best thing since sliced bread. He was born in the 1920s, and I guess that sliced bread was a harbinger of a new modern age. Today, of course, we use food in our language all the time. For example, I might say, I really go bananas when my wife spills the beans about my secret recipe for banana bread, but I guess that's the way the cookie crumbles. After all, I can't have my cake and eat it too. It's time to chat with J.M. Hirsch about this week's recipe, potato and green pea curry. J.M., how are you? I'm doing great. Your latest trip was to Mumbai. was. And you learned something about curry, which turned out to be quite different than what we had thought. It was fascinating because, you know, like most people, I assume a curry is really just a stew of some sort, you know. And then, you know, you take that the next step and you realize that across India and frankly across the world, there are thousands, hundreds of thousands of curries, and they can take all these different forms. They can be wet, they can be dry, mild, spicy, meaty, vegetarian. Green, yellow. Yeah, exactly. What could they possibly have in common? And again, anytime I've made a curry, I've just assumed you dump everything in the pot and simmer it away. But actually, there's an underlying structure that ties all of these curries together. It's all about the order that the ingredients are added to the pot. And because Indian cooks understand that the way you cook an ingredient and the timing of that cooking changes how it affects the flavor and the texture of the finished dish. So what are the steps? What's the order? So there's five steps, five key steps, and an optional sixth one. So the first one is you heat the fat in the pot sometimes ghee, sometimes oil. Then to that, they add whole spices such as cumin seeds and coriander seeds, and they bloom those whole spices in the fat, and they call this the tarka. Then 
the wet ingredients go in, the ginger, grated ginger, grated garlic, sometimes some chopped onion, and those cook for a little while. Then dry spices, ground cumin, Kashmiri chili powder. That's a very common ingredient in Mumbai, and they bloom those for a little bit. They couldn't have put those in earlier because they're going to burn if you put them in and cook them for too long. Finally, and only then, do you add your vegetables, your proteins, your kind of main ingredients, and let it cook. And those you sometimes stagger. Like, for example, one of the recipes we brought back was curry potatoes and peas. And you want to add the potatoes before the peas because the potatoes take longer to cook. So you stagger those ingredients. But those go in after all the seasonings have gone in. The final and optional step is a lot of times they will add some of the ground spices again at the end, kind of a repeat of the flavors, because these now haven't cooked for the longer time, and they're going to have a different effect on the dish. Were there any other recipes or combinations that you found kind of unusual or interesting? You know, what they say is every house has a different curry. So every time you turn around, there's a new curry that you're experiencing. And I had a fantastic potato and tomato curry that had a lot of heat to it because of some chili in it, and that was amazing. I had some curries that used cauliflower and potatoes, curried eggplant dishes. They were all delicious. I mean, but what to me was so fascinating was that they all followed the same method. There's a method to the madness. There is indeed. Not, not to our madness. <laughs> the people who really know what they're doing. Potato and green pea curry, and it's step-by-step. Uh, step-by-step. Step. six. Thank you. Thank you. You can get this recipe for potato and green pea curry at 177milkstreet.com. You're listening to Mill Street Radio. Coming up, Adam Gopnik ponders climate change and the future of wine. We'll be right back. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Next up, Sarah Moult and I will be taking more of your culinary questions. Sarah, are you ready? I am, Chris. I am so ready. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hello. Um, my name's Elsa. Hi, Elsa. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from Sharon, Vermont, and this is a follow-up call. Good. And uh, what was your call about initially? Tumbridge Fair cookies. Oh, yeah. I love the Tumbridge Fair, but you, you wanted some ideas for new flavors, I think, or something? Yeah, new things to yeah. add. So what happened? So how, we, we gave you, you we gave you some suggestions, mostly have to do with maple. But what did you do? Did you make new cookies? I did end up using maple in my cookie, and I did candy nuts with it. Good. But I put ginger in it as well. Oh, nice Good. idea. Excellent. Excellent. And to kind of cut down on some of the sharpness of the ginger, I added dried cranberries. Mm. And how'd it go? Um, I ended up getting first. Yes! Yay! Hooray! Where's that? Can we ring the... <laughs> we're, we're just the kitchen shrinks here. We, we just we need, advise. We need the foghorn and the yeah. bell. And, woo, woo, well, woo. good for you. This year's Tumbridge Fair? Yeah. Good for you. Yay. That's, that's well, terrific. Well, clearly you have some talent aside from our silly suggestions, so good for you. Well, she probably you go, knows, girl. knows more than we do. Yeah. So yeah. Well, that, that's really great. That's terrific. Hooray. Yeah, I'm Thank thrilled. you for this report back. Yeah, that makes yeah. my day. Elsa... Good work. Yes. Thank you. Thanks for calling. We really appreciate it. Okay. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Dane Stevens from Chicago. How are you? I'm great. So how can we help you? So I am struggling with beans. Basically, I am soaking them as you have instructed, but a large number of them are bursting on me. And so the ones that don't burst are perfect and they're great. But the ones that burst are ruining my dishes. Are you soaking them overnight? Then how are you cooking them? I usually pressure cook them for just a few minutes after they're soaked. What kind of stovetop do you have? I have a gas stovetop. Okay. You soak them overnight in salt brine? Yes. Okay. And then you drain them, and then you put them in the pressure cooker, and then you bring it up to high, correct? Uh, yeah, it's, it's an electric pressure cooker, but... Oh, okay. It's electric. So it doesn't matter that it's gas... I fear I'm doing something wrong in the soak because the ones that don't burst upon soaking, those are great. You're saying that before you pressure cook them, the ones that are soaked overnight, some of the beans already have burst before cooking or after cooking? Before cooking. And what kind of beans are these? Let's start with that. 
I mean, usually these are white beans, so cannellini beans. Cannellini beans. beans. I've had the same issue with kidney beans. Are you buying them in bulk? I'm getting them in the bags from the supermarket. I started buying a little more expensive ones. I was just buying them from the kind of local bodega. There's a company called Rancho Gordo. They're expensive, but those are terrific. I, I, I would say the difference in quality of beans, it's worth spending money on because if you just buy the ones at the local corner store... They may have been there since I think last the problem winter. is age. Yeah. I would just go buy better beans. Better quality. The method is fine. You can pre-soak beans that go into a pressure cooker. That actually will slow down the time you need the pressure cooker. Your cooking method's fine. It's just the beans are not fine. Yeah. So I guess I have a follow-up question sure. to this then. How long do beans stay good? Well, it's like how long do coffee beans stay good? It depends how long were they sitting somewhere before they got into the bag on your shelf? Yeah, you don't always know how long they were sitting there. I would go online and order like high-quality beans. If, if they're important to you and you care about it, I would spend a few extra bucks. And cooked, they freeze really nicely. Yes. They don't that Their texture does not change. So you can cook huge batches and then break them up into one or two cup amounts and freeze them, and then you're be in good shape. Thanks for calling. I hope that's somewhat helpful. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, okay. you're welcome. I appreciate it. This is Most Jet Radio. If you have a cooking question, give us a ring, 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Janice from Philadelphia. How are you? I'm fine. I am a little bit embarrassed to ask you my question because I'm a little worried that it will reveal some sort of a character flaw on my part. Oh, well, you're talking to someone who has plenty of those, so that's okay. You're in good company. (laughs) Don't worry. All right. Well, I was hosting a dinner party at the end of the summer, and I was chatting with one of my neighbors who's a rabbi when I posed the question about whether anyone really knows what the value of the bay leaf adds to stews, or were we all just adding it as an act of faith? And my neighbor raised a very spirited defense of the bay leaf and swore that he could tell the difference between the dish in which it was used from one where it wasn't. Um, He grew up in California, so the scent of bay leaves was very prevalent. So I think that might explain why he has a strong belief in the bay leaf. But I'm wondering, first of all, am I alone in doubting the role of the bay leaf And second, what can you as the culinary experts tell me to cause me to believe in it? I, for years, have agreed with you. Yeah, I was. You know what? I can't really, to be honest with you. Chris would just say, you're right, and we'll be done. No, but a fresh bay leaf, you know, you can smell it. It has a very particular scent, which is very unusual. But if you made a super stew without a couple of bay leaves in it, could I tell the difference? Probably not. I mean, Look, if I use cumin, if I use coriander, if I use Aleppo pepper, any number of other things, they clearly add something to a dish. But bay leaf? No. It's the classic (laughs) French, add a sprig of thyme. So I'm with you. I think as a question of faith, it's exactly that. Either it's the emperor's new clothes. You have to believe in it or not. I don't believe that. Now, Sarah, however, no, is going to here's provide. The thing. Sometimes you put things in a recipe and you don't, just because they don't shout out and say, look at me, doesn't mean that they didn't contribute to the dish. But I did want to say something about your friend. So, California bay leaves, 
they are different than Turkish. Turkish are from the bay or laurel plant. California come from a shrubby evergreen tree, and they are really, really, really potent. They really, really take over. So I'm not a fan of what your neighbor likes. I'm a fan of the Turkish. Uh-huh. I think they add a je ne sais quoi, shall we say. Which translate is, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, can we just, we just should have say quoi means like, I, I, I don't I can't know, taste but it, it doesn't mean that they don't add something. It's just, I can't describe it because um, they don't, you know, leap um, up and say, I'm special. They're just part of the, you know, equation. Well, but, here's a question. Chris, uh, given your opinion, do you add them anyway? That's an excellent question. Do I still light a candle at church, even though I, I don't believe? That's a good question. Most of the time, not, no. Oh, okay. I, you All know, right. because I did, look, I like big flavors. Bay leaves come from a time in my cooking where everything was French and very subtle. French cooking is very subtle. I don't do subtle cooking anymore. And bay leaves are just, you know, it's like the dogs can hear it, but I can't. It's out of the range of human taste. So, no, I don't. Sarah? I'll just stay in my corner over I here. I think you see. Okay, I'll just stay over here. Thank Alrighty you for calling. Then. All right, Jess. Thank <laughs> you. I think we've come you. to a conclusion. <laughs> All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. Now it's time for some culinary wisdom from one of our listeners. Hi, my name is Dana, and here's my tip. I buy a big can of vegetarian refried beans, tortillas, and avocados, and roll a bunch of burritos. Then I wrap and freeze them individually. On a busy or lazy night, all I have to do is heat the oven to 350 degrees, lightly coat both burrito sides in oil, and stick it in the oven for 10 minutes on each side. I keep it simple, but you could add cheese, rice, tomatoes, or any other ingredients for a cheap and healthy meal when you're just not up to it. By the way, if you'd like to share your own cooking tip on Milk Street Radio, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash radio tips. Next up, let's hear from regular contributor Adam Gopnik. Adam, how are you? I am fine. How are you, Christopher? Are you in a bright, sunny mood this week or in a darker frame of mind? I guess I'm about to find out. I'm on the whole someplace in the chiaroscuro range where dark meets light <laughs> in its own little dance. Of course. <laughs> I wanted to talk very seriously with you on this occasion about something that's on everybody's mind. And that is, of course, the issue of climate change and how it's affecting the planet. And it was brought home to me when something pleasant happened uh, not long ago, which is that I drank a glass of English champagne. Have you had any of the... what? is called English champagne. Obviously, it's not literally champagne. It doesn't come from the Champagne region of France, but it's a form of sparkling wine made in the classic champenoise way. Have you tasted any? No, no, I didn't even know it existed, actually. Well, it does, and here's the scary thing. It's damn good. It's terrific. It's a terrific wine. I don't know that you would say it's indistinguishable from French champagne, but it's very, very good, and as you can imagine, it's also very, very recent. England has been the great importing country for French wine over the years. We call claret claret because the British invented that term. But now they're actually a wine-producing nation. And they're, what they're producing are the wines that are typically associated with the northern edge of France, with Champagne and Alsace. And that's as visible a demonstration of the reality of climate change. It's, you know, There's no more cliched image than the canary in the coal mine, right? 
But we use that image because it captures something, that there are certain kinds of creatures, there are certain kinds of phenomena that are so fine-tuned, that are so highly hypersensitive, like a canary, that we use them as a beacon in that way. And wine is one of those indicators. It's such a super sensitive thing that it becomes a more immediate thermometer, a more immediate register of profound climate change than almost anything else. But you're now welcoming it because you can make champagne in England? Well, that's one of the dilemmas that this question presents. I'm sure you've seen um, that now famous study that came out, I think, in 2012, that uh, anticipated or predicted how using climate data, how the wine-growing regions of the world would change by 2050. And basically what that study said is that all the places we associate with um, the greatest wine now from Napa to Bordeaux would essentially become parched and austere regions, uh, and that what was once the north would become the wine-growing regions. Not only is it true about English Champagne, but in my own native country of Canada, for the first time in its history— Canada, Ontario, the Niagara Valley, is making first-rate white wine, kind of the classic wines, again, of the northern regions of France, Alsace and Champagne. And for the first time, Canada, which always traditionally had one decent wine, which was, of course, the ice wine, the sweet wine that occurred through the natural icing process of those grapes. Uh, Canada's having more and more difficulty making ice wine. So our national liqueur is disappearing as we achieve this ascendancy in making uh, white wine. And exactly the problem, Chris, as you say, is on the one hand, our hearts shrivel at the idea that there will be no more great Burgundy or that the Burgundy we drink from Burgundy will no longer taste anything like Burgundy. It'll taste more like a, a southern wine, that Burgundy will have to be replanted with Grenache, which flourishes in a hot climate. At the same time, and it is the case, we will suddenly have a new efflorescence of wine coming from the north. One of the problems is that most of those great wine-growing regions are addicted to a very limited number of grapes and limited number of grape varieties. <laughs> and one of the ways that we can respond to climate change is by attempting to cultivate different varieties that haven't flourished in the past. So... Uh do I end up whistling the Monty Python song, Always Look on the Bright Side of Life? <laughs> is that where I end up? Or, or am I sort of in a deep dungeon, you know, of despair? Usually, Christopher, I try to resolve your anxieties on this issue, which is the key planetary issue of our time. I genuinely do not know what to say. The harder we consider it, the more acutely we are aware of the losses and the more we have to search for compensating gains. But I think that in our children's lives, in our own experience in the next 30 years, the transformation of our experience of wine will be the most immediate and acute for those of us who love wine. Well, I could just end on one bright note. I don't know if you enjoy Sicilian wines, but they're probably my favorite wines on the planet, and that's not a northern climate. So, uh, Those are I didn't know that, Christopher, actually, and it, this was not a setup. I love Sicilian wines. I would rather drink a bottle of Nero d'Avolo or Primitivo from Sicily than just about any other wines I know. And you're absolutely right. Those are the ultimate hot-weather wines and the ultimate hot-weather grapes in Nero d'Avolo. And so we will all be left in a Sicilian climate drinking that lovely hot sun wine. But there will be a little part of me that will have a tear flowing from my left eye as I remember the uh, austere and mysterious glories of um, Burgundy. Adam, 
You did not resolve the quandary this week, but you put it explicitly and poetically. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. That was Adam Gopnik, staff writer for The New Yorker. That's it for today. If you tuned in too late or want to listen again, you can download and subscribe to Milk Street Radio wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, watch the new season of our television show, browse our online store, or order our latest cookbook, The New Rules, Recipes That Will Change the Way You Cook. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street and on Instagram and Twitter at 177 Milk Street. We'll be back next week, and thanks, of course, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Annie Sinzabaugh. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak. Production assistant, Stephanie Cohn. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, David Goodman. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick, Cindy Lewis, and Samantha Brown. And audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Tubop Crew. Additional music by George Brinnell Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. Thank you.